little more. Uh, that'll be. Uh, let's go up a little bit. That's good. Thank you. <laughs> All right, guy. What's so funny? Uh huh. Uh huh. Yes, you're welcome for that all afternoon. <laughs> all right. Um, so, uh, if you guys have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of First John, chapter five, and uh, we are going to continue this morning. And uh, so, the the reason, as you're turning there, the reason that we do that uh, with the kids, and that was the first time that we've we've done it, um, is simply is is not to try and put on a performance that we, you know, use to invite a bunch of people in to see, but it's just uh, a way for us together as a church to celebrate Christmas with our kids, um, and so that's why we, uh, we did that this year. Uh, it, was, it was neat this week in our house, uh, the kids trying to learn the song uh, and the verse, um, and Kinsley got like the first five words, and she's very proud, so, um, but that was, that was awesome. So, um, we're going to, uh, uh, let's read First John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 together, uh, and then I'll pray, um, and then we'll, we'll get into today's message. So John, First uh, John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12 say this, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in Himself. Whoever does not believe God has made Him a liar, because He has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Father, uh, God, we thank You that uh, today is the Sunday morning where as a, as a church family, as a, as a whole church, God, a congregation, that we gather, uh, Lord, to celebrate the birth of Jesus. It is the day, God, where we we are thankful, God, for all of the work of Jesus on our behalf, God, but we, we particularly celebrate Jesus coming, being made simple, putting aside the, the, the treasures and the, the, um, the benefits of heaven, and He took on human flesh. And God, we're not just grateful that He came, God, but we're grateful in why He came, because we know, God, that without Jesus we could not have life. So I pray this Christmas season, God, and this morning in this message, God, that you would illuminate our hearts on the truth of Jesus. God, how that matters, why that matters, the importance of it, God. And Lord, that you would spur us on, um, God, to believe and, and to live a life, God, um, that is in accordance with Jesus taking on flesh. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Amen. So this morning's message uh, is entitled, um, He Who Came. And so we're going to spend some time looking at, uh, in 1 John 5, what it was that John wanted the church to know about He Who Came. 
Um, and then we'll wrap it up this morning by talking a little bit specifically about our response during Christmas season. But, you know, it's, it's true that, uh, you know, one of the, 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 the sayings that kept coming to my mind as I was, as I was preparing this week was that old saying, uh, I'm just waiting for my ship to come in, right? And so many of us feel that way. So many of us spend um, our lives waiting for someone or something to come in. Someone or something that we think is going to better our lives. It's going to make our, our situation more comfortable. It's going to make it more livable. It's going to make it more enjoyable. You know, many young single people live their life waiting for a spouse. And then when they get married, they, they sit and they wait for children. Some people sit and wait simply for the appreciation of the hard work that they put in, and they never get appreciated for it. And they're waiting for that appreciation to come in. Because when they're finally appreciated for their hard work, then life will be good. Then they'll be viewed the way that they feel they should be viewed. Some people are simply waiting for rest from all that hard work, right? In the 80s, Bachman-Turner Overdrive, everybody's working for the weekend. We're just waiting. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> Although it might be the 70s, but I wasn't born then, so I don't know. <laughs> but that's the truth, right? Like, like, there is so much of our life is spent just anticipating rest from work. Some of us are just sitting and waiting for physical, emotional, or mental healing. You know, there's a common story that if you've been in church uh, and heard any number of sermons, you've probably heard this illustration, but there's a story of a man who uh, was living in a city where a great flood came, and I'm not talking about Noah and the flood, right? Let's just, we'll say it's Texas. The flood waters came, and the guy, <laughs> the guy uh, climbs up to the top of his house because the waters are so bad. Uh, and, and, and a rescue boat comes by to save him. And, and the guy goes, come on, get on, we're here to save you. He goes, no, I'm waiting for God to save me. Right? And a little, a little time uh, passes, and the waters rise, and a helicopter comes and says, hey, get, get on the helicopter. I'm, I'm here to save you. No, I'm, I'm, God's going to save me. I have faith. I believe God's going to save me. Well, eventually, the waters got so tall that they were higher than his house, and he drowned. And when he gets to heaven... His first question to God was, I had faith that you were going to save me. What happened? And God said, well, I sent you a boat and a helicopter, and that wasn't good enough. But that's the truth, right? We're constantly waiting and expecting. Jesus encountered this in his earthly ministry. He encountered people who were constantly looking for what? A sign. Another sign. Do this, and I'll believe. Do this, and then you're worthy of my life. Do this, and then I'll forsake sin and repent. And Jesus, basically, he cursed them. He called them a wicked and perverse generation. He said, the greatest sign of all will be given to you. And then, he, and then he references them back to Jonah, three days in the belly of a fish. And then he was spit out on the ground. So Jesus was telling them that the greatest sign, the only sign that you need to believe, the only, only sign that, that, that validates that God has sent his son and that this is God's method of salvation is his son will be born, will come, will die, and will raise again. And so, in a time of doubt and cultural denial, John wanted his hurting and his struggling church to know he who came. And how appropriate is that for us today? Everywhere we go, there is cultural denial of what we believe. There is denial of the Bible as God's written word. There is denial of Jesus as God. There is denial, listen, there's denial of sin, right? 
There's denial. There's a, there's a, there's a common agreement that, we, we, that, that there's, no, there's no set right or wrong. It's just kind of whatever I feel, whatever's right for me or whatever's wrong for me and whatever's right for you. Right? And, like, and isn't there a part of our flesh, and let's just be honest, um, where we all wish it really was that way and that I could do whatever I wanted to whoever I wanted so that it was right by me? Yeah, but that's not the truth. There is absolute right and wrong. And one of the, the common words, is, as you read through this, we heard it a few times, was the word testify. And, and John tells them that there's, there's three that testify. And so when we see the word testify, I just real briefly want to answer two, two questions with you. One, what is being testified to? And two, who is testifying? So the first thing that we answer is what is being testified to, and John tells us that in verse 6, that he's testifying to the coming of Jesus. He's wanting them to remember, listen, in the midst of their struggle, in the midst of their doubt, in the midst of their disbelief, he wants them to remember the birth of Christ. Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He's calling them. His encouragement to them is calling them to remember that Christ was born. Now, who was testifying? This can get a little bit of confu- this can get a little confusing. I don't want to spend the whole morning explaining, but but I do want to briefly explain this because I don't want you walking away being uh, uh, just confused about this. But who is testifying? And and John tells us that there are three that testify to the coming of Jesus. Right? There's three, and, and part of this goes back to uh, the Old Testament, where if you read in uh, Numbers and in Deuteronomy, um, where there is to be a witness for something to be fully agreed upon, there has to be three witnesses. And so John is, is recalling, for those who are Jewish descent in this church, he's, he's kind of going back to the Old Testament, right? And he's showing them, like, this is, this is, this is how it's pointing to Christ. And so he's going to give them the three that testified to Jesus coming, because remember, in that day, and in this day, most Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so the first one that is testifying, he says, is the water. He says that in verse 6, two times. This is he who came by water and by blood. And so what is he talking about water? Well, most theologians agree that he is referencing the baptism of Jesus. He's referencing the time where Jesus humbly comes to John the Baptist in the Jordan River and says, baptize me. John the Baptist says, I'm not worthy. Like, you're the Messiah. Like, God had already opened John the Baptist's eyes to who Jesus was, divinely, sovereignly. And, and so John's like, I'm not worthy to baptize you. You're the Messiah. I'm just, I, I follow you. And Jesus says, no, baptize me so that the will of my Father will be accomplished. And so John obeys, and Jesus is baptized. And then what happens at that moment is as Jesus is being baptized, the heavens open up, Right? And we see this perfect trinity, uh, this perfect picture and, and proof of the trinity because at the same, all at the same time, we see Jesus, the Son, being baptized. We hear the voice of the Father say, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And at the same time, the Spirit, like a dove, not as a dove, but like a dove, descends and rests on Jesus. And why this is so important, why does John call their remembrance to Jesus' baptism is because it was where Jesus was formally set apart for his messianic work. From that point on, Jesus began to perform miracles. From that point on, Jesus began to fulfill, um, or, or to, I guess it was kind of the end, if you will, the beginning of the end of Jesus' work. He had already lived a perfectly sinless life for about 30 years, so that was part of God's will for his life. 
But now he began to, to perform miracles so that people would see, people would come to know that he was the one that God sent to save. Then, of course, the second thing that is testifying here he talks about is the blood. And this, of course, is the goal of Christmas. And that is why we celebrate Easter. He's talking about the blood on the cross. He's talking about Jesus' blood spilt for you and I, for the forgiveness of sins. God's wrath poured out. Remember a couple times already in the book of 1 John, John has used the word propitiation. Right, which means that God's wrath was, sac- was, was, um, was met or was um, dispensed on an alternate sacrifice. So God's wrath was satisfied through the blood of Jesus. God's coming, he who came is good news because it's the beginning of God's wrath being satisfied for us. And then the third person that John says testifies is the Spirit. So the water testifies in his baptism that Jesus was formally set apart for his messianic work, and the blood testifies to Jesus' death, which was the culmination of his messianic work, and the Spirit then testifies to what? To the water and the blood. The Spirit was present at Jesus' baptism when the Father said, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased, and we know the Bible tells us that it was the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And so the Spirit testifies to Jesus' obedient death. It testifies. And he says as much down here in, in verse 11, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son of God has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so it is the testimony in our own lives. And John is reminding them, I believe, that John is calling to remember. It's almost like sometimes when we sit together and we talk, like, let's stop for a moment and let's remember what God has done in your life. Let's, let's remember where you were before God had opened your eyes to the truth that Jesus is the Savior and you believed. Let's even stop and remember three years ago what your life was like. And remember, and let's, let's call to remember together. Let's celebrate together. Let's remember together the good things that God has done to change you. And the peace and the comfort and the security that God's Spirit has brought in the midst, in the midst of His changing our hearts. And this is what John is saying. God's Spirit in us testifies to Christ's death and His baptism and His birth. Because that is, the, that, is the, that is the role of the Spirit, to testify to Christ. You see, without the Spirit coming and illuminating to our hearts and our minds, there's no way that we would ever know Jesus is Savior because we would never believe. Because without the Holy Spirit's drawing us to the truth of who Jesus is, we don't want to know the truth who Jesus is. Our flesh fights it because we don't want to give up. Is there any reason that we should give up the worldly pleasures that our hearts desire other than the fact that God Almighty has come and borne witness to our hearts? And so John is saying that these three testify to he who has come. And with that, I had this thought as I was, as I was studying this week. And I want to ask us this, and, and I, I want us to honestly, to ourselves, with our own hearts, I want us to be honest in our answer to this. How closely do you testify to Christ? 
And what I mean by that is, what do you defend or associate the most with in life? When somebody starts dogging on your team, are you quick to stand up and fight back? Right? If somebody starts uh, belittling your children, are you going to stand for it? I should hope not, and that's good to defend them. But are we as quick to defend the name of Jesus? Are we as quick to identify more closely with Christ than anything else in our life? Are we as quick to align our lives around other things? Excuse me. Are we as quick to align our life around Christ as we are football season, as we are vacations, as we are the weekend, as we are fill in the blank for whatever it is that that your heart runs to? Now listen, there's freedom in this because the truth of that is that nobody in here aligns closely enough and testifies enough to Christ. Nobody in here defends Christ enough or the way that Christ deserves us proclaiming his truth. Right? Now that doesn't mean that, okay, that's good. I don't have to do it because the pastor said, so I'm, the guilt is gone. Well, the guilt is gone, but not because I said so, but because Christ paid the price for your guilt. He removed your guilt. He bore your guilt on the cross. But we should be compelled to reorient our lives around the gospel of Jesus so that we, we associate more, we defend more quickly, more adamantly Christ than we do anything else. Anything else. Verse 9, he goes on and he says, if we receive the testimony of men, right? And so this is, he's, he's using the word testimony again and he's kind of bringing in, if you will, let's, let's picture our minds here uh, in a courtroom. Okay, let's just say we're all jurors. And the defense is bringing in witness after witness to, to defend the defendant, to say, I saw it, that's not what happened, as the prosecutor will bring in what? His witnesses to say, no, I did see it, that is what happened, Right? And so that's kind of the image that we need here to understand what he's about to say. We need to understand the fact that when you and I hear somebody say, no, I was there, I saw it. And then another person comes and says, no, I was there and I saw the same thing. And you're lining up witnesses that all attest to the same truth. What do we say? Okay, I believe it. I believe it. And so what John says then is, if you accept the testimony of men, how much more? is the testimony of God. How much greater is the testimony of God? He says that very thing. He says the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has bore concerning his son, that he came, that he was obedient in baptism, that he he died to pay the penalty of sin for his people, that the Spirit raised him and that the Spirit is active then as well as today in illuminating the truth of who Jesus is to the hearts of unbelieving sinners. How much more is the testimony of God? And so John, again, is just making his case with this church of like, don't, I think really what I would guess, I mean, obviously I've never been through anything like they have, but, you know, planning a church, Uh, being in church leadership, there's a lot of things that are similar. And I really think here's what John is saying to the church. Don't give up. Don't quit. He really came. Keep 
keep proclaiming and living in light of the truth. It is so easy for us to be swayed in the culture of unbelief, isn't it? Isn't it so easy for us to say, well, maybe we'll just stop telling people it's sin. Maybe we'll just kind of tell them, you know, you just kind of need to change a few things about your behavior. It's so easy to fall into that. Because our culture says you can't offend anybody. Our culture has tried to teach us that the word tolerant does not only mean I accept you in light of what you believe, but they're trying to teach us that the word tolerant means that in order to be tolerant, you have to believe what they believe and you have to validate what they believe. That's not tolerance. That's uniformity. Right? And that's not what we're called. We're called to love all people. Christ died so that as many would believe would be saved. Of all people. Jews, Gentiles alike. It's not for us to discriminate. But we also don't have to go around validating every false belief. And in fact, we are called to go around and to bring the truth to the false belief. Not in an arrogant and obnoxious way, but in a loving way. In a way that says, the reason I'm sharing this with you isn't to prove that you're wrong or to think that I'm better than you, but the reason is so that you will come to believe also with me. So we will journey together in belief. So let me give you now three reasons why knowing he who came matters this Christmas season. So we've already established that he who came is Jesus. We all know just by going into Walmart since the day after Thanksgiving that it's Christmas season, right? Because they just start blasting it earlier and earlier every year. Every year. Pretty soon Thanksgiving is going to be moved to October so they can start selling for Christmas in, th- in November. But let me give you three reasons why knowing he who comes matters this Christmas season. We've already touched on this a little bit, but number one is because he teaches us that sin is not to be taken lightly. Of course, he being Jesus. Think about with me, and, and reading that story this morning, and the songs that we have sung have already begun to, to put our, our hearts and our thoughts down this pathway, but think with me for a minute just how drastic it would be, or it was, for Jesus to ascend to earth as a baby. Just think about that. How drastic of a step is it that he would come and he would live knowing, listen, Jesus being crucified, remember, wasn't a a shock to him. It wasn't like the father said, you know what, I need you to go. I can't tell you why, because if, if, if I do tell you why, you might not go, and then you might not do it, and then my plan will not work. Jesus was born knowing the path that laid ahead of him. Would any one of us choose to do that? Right? We, we struggle setting aside a little bit of money each month to give to people who, don't, who aren't responsible or, or who don't keep their word, Right? In our, in our missional communities, the, the focus groups. But what a stark contrast it was that Christ willingly came. And he willingly came because sin really is that big of a deal. Like, that's, that, that's, that's one of the things that we have to constantly be reminded of, is that sin, listen, our, listen we have sit, Sin City, right? Sayings like, sin like you mean it. People who tell us that, well, that's not sinful. Well, the Bible says it's sinful, but what the Bible really means, right? 
that's not what the birth of Christ teaches us, and that's not why it matters. And in fact, there's, let me give you, there's, there's four. I, I, as I was thinking through this, I'm not saying this is exhaustive list, but let me give you four ways that we naturally react to sin. Number one is typically we'll reclassify it, meaning it's not a sin. Don't tell me it's a sin, right? We'll reclassify, we'll just straight out say that what I just did was not sinful. The second way that we react to sin naturally is that we demean it, and by that I mean we just say it's not that big of a deal, get over it. It was just a little white lie, right? So we're acknowledging that it's sinful, but we're just saying really in the grand scheme of things, when I look at other people's lives, what I did wasn't really that bad. Third, we justify it by saying, depending on the situation, I or they deserved it. Whether it be a sinful indulgence, we tell ourselves that I deserved it. It's justified. It's okay. I worked hard. Right? I put in my two cents. I put in my time. I paid my dues. I deserve it. I'll go in debt for this Christmas and spend $4,000 on Christmas that I don't have because we deserve it. Or we justify the sin that we do to other people by saying they deserved it. I exposed their sin because they hurt me. I withheld forgiveness because they don't deserve to be forgiven. I withheld kindness and gentleness because you just don't deserve it. So we justify our sin. We claim it as being okay. Yes, it was sin. It's kind of like the difference, if you read the penal code, it's kind of like the difference between um, homicide and um, um, uh, just the term just left me. Um, no, not manslaughter. It's, it's willful homicide, and then there's, there's another category for homicide that's a defense, right? Um, and, and, and so there is within the penal code, like just, justifiable homicide, that's what it is. Okay, so there's homicide and there's justifiable homicide. And so we're kind of like that where we're going to say, well, this was, this, that was sinful. Yeah, that was just wrong. But what you did was just homicide. But what I did was justifiable homicide. Right? Like, we want to play that. We want to justify it. We want to declare it legally okay. The fourth thing that we do is we, we overcome it. And by this, I am by no means saying the power of the, we use the power of the Spirit to overcome sin. And we rely on the work of Christ on our behalf. And, and we receive His grace and we revel in His generosity towards us. But what I mean by that is we simply try to save ourselves. We try and cover it up so nobody knows. Right? When we come here together on Sundays, we act like everything is just great. Because nobody's going to know what's really going on. Or we think that by doing so many good deeds that we have now undone our wrongs. If we've given so much money, right, that, that now it's okay, I've just covered it. Don't worry about it. It's now in the, in the eternal scoreboard. Now it says zero, zero. And without the Holy Spirit speaking the truth to our hearts and our minds, this is, these are the only ways that I see that we respond to sin. This is the human condition that, that we live with. And now listen, knowing this should make us wiser missionaries because this tells us how the unsaved people that we live with, the unsaved people that we work with, the unsaved people that are our neighbors, that are in our families, hey, the unsaved people that we might be gathering with this Christmas season, right? When we all want to act like everything's great, but we really can't stand each other. But it's Christmas, so we're just going to fake it. 
But this is the way that they're going to respond to sin. And this is why knowing the gospel matters so much, because we should be able to speak the truth of the gospel to each one of these reactions to sin. But the birth of Christ teaches us that in order to properly respond to our sin, God had to intervene. God had to intervene. And doesn't that speak of his goodness? Wouldn't it have been easier just to wipe it all away and start over? Like, these are questions that we'll never fully understand, right? I'm not claiming to say that I have the theological answer as to why God did that, why he didn't just start over. I I, I don't know, but he didn't. And I do know that that speaks to the great love that he has for his people. That rather than be wiped away, he would rather us be saved. He would rather our sins be blotted out. The second reason that it matters this Christmas is because he, Jesus, teaches us that stature is not defined by material standards. Okay? Stature is not defined by material standards. Our missional community went out Friday night to try and uh, look at Christmas lights together. And we found uh, this website that said there's a few houses in town that are must, you got, you got to go look at, right? They're must-sees, right? Well, one of them was in a stinking gated community that we couldn't get into. That was not helpful at all. But it proves my point. Mm-hmm. Who lives in gated communities, <laughs> right? Like the people that we esteem for being rich and well-off, and we drive away thinking, gosh, I wish people couldn't get to my house this easily. <laughs> I wish you had to have a code <laughs> to get into my place. But think about it in real life. Out at work, whoever rolls up in the nicest, biggest truck is typically the what? The boss. You got to do what he says. You got to look busy as soon as you see his truck rolling up because, right? That's reality. Same thing when we go camping with all the campers. I'll tell you what, it's amazing how fast my own heart goes from grateful to ungrateful from the time that I hook my trailer up and head out to the time I pull in and see the other campers where I'm at. (laughs) Right? (laughs) You'll take it. And then when you pull in and see all the other ones, you'll be sitting with me. But our society defines stature by material standards. Do you have a college degree or not? Because if you don't, you're not worth it. Gated community, the zip codes we live in, and our, our city is so defined by zip codes, right? Like there's zip codes. You just, I'm just not, where's that house? I'm not living there. Well, it's a nice house. I don't care if it's a nice house. Do you see the zip code? Right? Oh, wait. I know everybody's thinking it. You got You guys are all mouthing it to me, I know. Right? But that's the truth. Because there is something better about not living in those zip codes. That's how we esteem it. Even though what most people don't know is the corner of Hegman and Coffee is 08. Really nice houses. Has nothing to do with Oildale, but it's in 08. But now think about this. Think about Christ now in contrast. Christ was born of a virgin. Right? Imagine explaining that to your friends. What happened to your dad? Well, that's my stepdad. What happened to your dad? Uh, <laughs> uh, he didn't leave. 
He was born in a barn. He slept in an animal feeding trough. His dad, his stepdad, was a, was a lower class, lower middle class, low class carpenter. And the Bible tells us that much because people say, wasn't that the carpenter's kid? The Bible tells us that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Jesus came out of Nazareth. The Bible tells us that he was nothing to look at. And I was thinking about this part of it this week, and I was thinking, my, my, my thoughts went back to uh, King David, right? And, and how King David was um, the 12th of 12 brothers, right? And when Samuel went to, by God, God said, go to the house of Jesse and anoint the next king. And so when he tells Jesse, the dad, what's going on, what does Jesse do? He brings out his oldest, his biggest, his strongest, his best-looking kid. And what does Samuel say to himself? This has got to be it. Outside of God's spirit, Jesse's oldest son is king. Because Samuel looks at this young man, he goes, that guy's a king. God bred him to be a king. But the spirit inside Samuel said, nope, that's not him. So Jesse brings... One through David was the twelfth out of twelve boys. But now keep this in mind. There was only one family present. What if, what if there would have been another family there? How many, how many people would Jesse or would Samuel had to have gone through until, Sam, until he said, No, this is him? And that is such a picture of our Savior. He was nothing to look at. Physical standards, we wouldn't have chosen him. Physical stature, his dad didn't have a big, booming, million-dollar company to hand down to him, right? He, he worked with his dad, we know that, but there was nothing about his material entrance, there was nothing about his life that declared king of kings. There was nothing. And still to this day, we don't, we don't fully, I, I get it, we don't fully grasp that. But we need to know, this is why knowing Jesus matters. Because it teaches us, we don't have to pursue our stature in this world by gaining material things. It's not about getting a bigger and better house so that you can be more comfortable and people will think, man, they live in a gated community. Not that getting bigger houses is wrong. Get a bigger house so you can have more people in. You can, you can care for the poor better. You can host the strangers better. You can care for orphan kids better. But it's not about stature. Our city idolizes image. We care what people think about us. Why else would you put a lift kit and big mud tires on a two-wheel drive pickup? <laughs> because you want everybody to think you're a redneck from Bakersfield who goes out in the mud and off roads. It's image. We think that people are going to care about us more, that people's view of us will be better because of the material things that we have. But the birth of Jesus teaches us the exact opposite. The third reason that knowing he who came matters this Christmas season is because Jesus teaches us that our lives have a purpose. Our lives have a purpose. A greater purpose sometimes than what we want to give to ourselves. Right? A greater purpose than a lot of... Listen, how many people... Self-help books are a multi-million dollar annual industry. 
people are trying to find a reason for their existence. People are trying to find a way to matter. Suicide. People go into believing that they don't matter so much that they're going to kill themselves. It's a lie. It's false humility, and it's a lie. But knowing Jesus matters because it, it teaches us that our lives have a purpose. We are to be God's people that tangibly bring his presence into a dark and dying and depressed world. Our neighborhoods, every neighborhood that we live in, and this from our church here, every neighborhood should be better because we live there. Not because we have arrived and we're like, hey, we're here to save you, but because God's spirit lives in us and we understand that our lives have a purpose and that purpose is to bring reconciliation and renewal into our city and our neighbors. Our neighborhood should be better. Our city should be better because our church is here. Our lives have a purpose. And this especially matters in Christmas time because we tend to view ourselves through what? The gifts we give and the gifts we receive. If they really loved me, they would have spent this much money on me. Right? Or what if they don't love me because I didn't give enough? That's not the purpose of gift giving. Material things don't determine our stature. Chapter 5 of 1 John here, as we're wrapping up this morning, takes a, an interesting twist. He, chapters 1 through 4, John focuses the entire, uh, the entire four chapters between love and obeying, love and obeying, and he constantly is tying those two things together. In chapter 5, he kind of introduces a new concept, not new to Christians, not new to Scripture. I'm just saying new to this letter, and that is the concept of faith. He talks about believing a lot in chapter 5. We saw it last week. We see it this week. If you don't believe, you don't have life. If you do believe, you do have life. And so the reality is, is that's where we all sit here today, either believing or not believing. It amazes me at Christmas time how many heated debates get started over whether or not you and your family believe in Santa. That's what we're going to die on. But yet when it comes to teaching our kids and defending the name of Christ, we're silent. Getting in fights over Santa is not, <laughs> is not becoming of us. If you want to believe in Santa, whatever. I don't care. I mean, you need to understand why you are or aren't doing it, obviously, but I, we're not going to take an official position that says you're wrong or right because the Bible doesn't take an official position on it. But it does amaze me at how many parents and people are quick to defend Santa and the tradition of Santa, one, without knowing the true tradition themselves, um, but then they're silent when it comes to Christ. So as we wrap up, and the band will come back up here in just a moment, and we'll, we'll, we'll close with our, our customary two songs, but let me just leave you with this question. Um, and that is simply, this Christmas, what do you believe about Christ? What do you believe about Christ? And how are you going to work that out so that people are clear so that people clearly understand what you believe about Christ. If you guys will stand with me, we'll pray.
God, I thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus. I thank you, God, that it is good news that he came to forgive those who didn't forgive forgiveness, to set free those who did not deserve to be pardoned, to give life to those who did not deserve to live. I thank you, God, that we are counted among those who did not deserve it. I pray, God, that in humility, God, and in humble adoration, that we would believe in Jesus this Christmas. God, that our lives and the way that we treat one another and the way that we spend money and the way that we go about this Christmas season, God, would be marked by our belief in Christ Jesus. I pray, God, that you would help us to know he who came, that your spirit would illuminate the truth of Jesus. For those, God, who walked in this morning not believing, I pray, God, that the same would not be true of them as they walk out. But, God, that you would illuminate the truth to such a point that they walk out believing. I pray also, God, for those who walked in believing this morning, I ask, God, that you would help us to repent from the ways, God, um, Lord, that we bought into the lies of cultural Christmas. Help us to repent, God, from taking sin lightly, our own sin as well as other sin. I pray, God, that you would help us to repent, God, from, from viewing our material goods, God, by, as the measure by which we are, we are liked or not liked. And I pray, God, that you would help us to repent, God, for not living our lives with purpose. Thank you, God, that you promised to give us the strength to repent, that you promised to give us the strength to live in accordance with what we believe.